This is an ABC podcast. Sometimes in life, the path forward seems obvious. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense and a program focused on reducing carbon emissions and funding renewable energy. As I was saying, it can seem strange when suddenly what appears like a no-brainer not only becomes an issue, but a full-on point of contention. Take carbon pricing as an example. When you have to pay for something, you're less likely to waste it. Carbon pricing is a way to encourage polluters to reduce their CO2 emissions or pay the price. This both cuts pollution and generates revenue to help find cleaner options. It seems to make obvious sense, and many countries now have some form of carbon pricing. But not in the US and not in Australia, where the very idea remains a divisive political issue. Politicians are still arguing about whether carbon pricing actually works. Well, at the Australian National University, economist Paul Burke decided to put the matter to rest. He and his colleagues have crunched the global data in the largest ever study of its kind. So what did they find? Let's cut to the chase. Does carbon pricing reduce emissions? The answer, in short, is definitely yes. So economists have often advocated the use of carbon pricing. If you put a price on carbon emissions, then the economy will tend to steer away from emitting carbon. What we did is we put together a big study of lots of countries around the world, and we found that, yes, we can see that pretty clearly in the data. In fact, 142 countries, is that correct? Yes, that's right. We put together as big a data set as possible, and it's the largest study so far. And we're focusing in on emissions from the energy sector. What we found is that countries with a carbon price, their emissions growth rate tends to be about two percentage points lower than other countries on average. So instead of growing, for example, by 1% per year, then it tends to be declining by 1% per year in countries with carbon price. And does that increase, that differential, does that increase over time? Well, it's a differential that just accumulates over time. So every year, the emissions growth rate is lower in countries with carbon prices compared to others. So once some years go by, the effect really becomes very noticeable. The trajectories of the emissions of those two types of countries with and without carbon prices, they tend to diverge over time. Did your study take into account other factors, factors unrelated to carbon pricing? Yes, that was the key challenge for the study, is to try to take into account the other factors out there, other policies, economic shocks, differences in some institutional arrangements between countries and so on. So we did control for other policies affecting renewable energy adoption and energy efficiency. The challenge is to control for everything, and it's actually impossible to fully control for every other difference between countries, but we controlled for quite a few other things. And what we found is that once we hold those other factors constant, then we can see a real difference between the countries that have a carbon price in place, like countries in Europe and New Zealand, for example, and then other countries that don't have a carbon price in place. Does the level of carbon pricing play a role in all of this? Does that make a significant difference? So what we found is that a higher carbon price leads to a bigger effect on emissions. Listeners might be thinking, well, that's obvious. And yeah, we quite agree with that. That's what we were expecting. But it is important to be able to see such things in the data and to confirm 
prior expectations. So we found having a carbon price helps to reduce emissions and the higher the carbon price, then the bigger the effect in terms of reducing those emissions. And what about Australia's place in all of this? Because we had a carbon scheme for several years, didn't we, between 2012 and 2014? That's right. We had a very good carbon pricing arrangement for two years. And during those two years, and also in the the lead up to those two years, emissions were reducing quite quickly in Australia. Since the removal of the carbon price in Australia, our emissions have basically plateaued altogether. Really, we've finished in terms of being able to achieve strong emissions reductions. So the removal of the carbon price in Australia was a big setback in terms of the transition to a a low carbon economy. Instead, Australia has gone for some other policy approaches. We have the direct action approach of using subsidies from the Emissions Reduction Fund to reduce emissions in some projects here and there across the economy. But we don't have that broad economy-wide signal to be incentivising emissions reductions. So does that suggest that carbon pricing can be complemented by these other type of measures, as you've just uh, outlined, but without carbon pricing, those other measures are not necessarily going to be as effective? Well, there are certainly uh, lots of tools in, in the toolkit. So one can reduce emissions without a carbon price. One can go for a strong regulatory approach requiring the electricity sector to reduce emissions over time and so on. One could go for a subsidy type of approach. And even with a carbon price, as you say, it's very useful to have some complementary approaches. For example, research and development, investment, and also regulations in some particular sectors can be very useful. Australia's approach of having some subsidies for some projects, it's a pretty half-hearted attempt to be reducing emissions. It's not the type of approach that would be able to incentivize a lot of emissions reduction year in, year out. So what impact would you hope that your findings will have, not just on the Australian government, but on various governments and on future decisions in different countries? Well, around the world, quite a few countries do have carbon prices in place. So it's about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions are now subject to some type of price on carbon. So the evidence is there that carbon pricing can help to reduce emissions. Whether this tool is used and to what extent is up to governments and and the decision-making process. As researchers, we were curious to quantify that number. So if we have a carbon price, by how much will that be reducing our emissions? Looking around the world, some countries have been going for carbon prices in recent years as well. So recently, Singapore and South Africa, as examples, have introduced carbon prices. There's a lot of potential for other countries around the world to be using this type of approach. And some other countries like Vietnam, for example, are considering using some type of carbon pricing in future years. So the idea with the research is we've found strong evidence that carbon pricing is effective and this helps to inform future decisions about what type of arrangement to go for reducing emissions. Carbon pricing ideally would be at the centre of any serious effort. Associate Professor Paul Burke from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, the Australian National University. Another way to rein in our carbon emissions is to try and influence businesses to move away from fossil fuel production altogether, or indeed the financing of fossil fuels. In recent times, we've seen the emergence of what are called shareholder advocacy organisations focused specifically on environmental issues. 
Dan Gosher is the Director of Climate and Environment at one of those organisations, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. Ultimately, corporations are a form of democracy in a way. Shareholders have rights and those rights manifest themselves in voting rights so they can elect directors, they can propose motions and they get to express a view on how the company is run. So ultimately, we're trying to persuade enough of those shareholders, as it is a democracy, to get a majority of them thinking the same way that that we do and to impress that view upon the board. So the benefit is to those investors that they have a say in the way the company is run. And if they think that this company is posing a risk to their own capital, to their investment, as well as to the planet, then they can take action and, and really try to change that company from within. And could you just give us a couple of examples of successes in this area, uh, not just here in Australia, but also overseas? The most obvious example at this point in time is BP. BP, as we all know, is, is one of the world's largest oil and gas companies. It's committed to cutting production significantly by 2030. And that's come about through various actors putting pressure on BP over a number of years. And more recently, I guess, the successes that we'd point to in Australia is You know, we've engaged with BHP about its membership of industry associations for the last several years. And while we think that some of those industry associations are still obstructing climate policy, some of it has improved. And that's that shareholder pressure. And look, we are starting to see some companies certainly disclosing more information about climate change than they were five years ago. But we're really at that point where we need them to start setting really ambitious emissions targets. And I think we're not far away from that. It's a tough road because that disclosure piece is really the first step along the path. But the emissions targets and real-world action is what we're pushing for now. And looking at shareholders specifically, I mean, they traditionally, don't they, vote according to management recommendation. Why should they change? Is that actually changing? Uh, Overwhelmingly, yes, they do vote with management. And typically the things that they're voting on are director re-elections, remuneration reports, and sometimes constitutional changes. So typically they are voting with management unless there's a major issue. So what we saw during and after the Royal Commi- the Banking Royal Commission was that there were significant votes against individual directors and remuneration at the big four banks as well as AMP. And so you do see those moments where institutional investors will vote against management, but they are fairly rare. So I guess the resolutions that we put up are trying to mobilise that capital to vote for change. And that is one of the biggest challenges is is that I wouldn't say it's apathy, but it's just uh, siding with management typically. And that's one of of the biggest hurdles for us in trying to bring about corporate change. And when you say resolutions, you're talking about resolutions at what, at annual general meetings? Correct. So in order to put up a shareholder resolution, you need 100 shareholders. And the way we do that is, you know, we have a, an existing database of, of people that support our work. And on any given company that we engage with, we decide to proceed to a resolution. We'll file that motion with the company using 100 signatures. And typically we have far more than that. It's, it's not just 100. But usually these are relatively small shareholders, but people who've been invested in the company for some time. And that's one way that people can support this kind of work. The company will then announce that that will be voted upon at the AGM and it'll be included in the notice of meeting. And then it's up to the investors and, and you know, be they mum and dad shareholders or be they um, institutional investors about how they vote on that particular issue. I guess the challenge for us is taking those votes and, and those intentions and turning that into reward actions. Tell us about the Climate Action 100 project. So this is a coalition of institutional investors 
big super funds, big global uh, foreign pension funds, big in, uh, investment managers. And, you know, I think they collectively control something like $30 trillion, so uh, not, not a small amount of money. And the initiative was started about two and a half, three years ago, focusing on the world's biggest emitters. So something like 160 companies, I think about 12 of which are in Australia. And the idea was that over a five-year program, engagement with those companies would be quite targeted and, I guess, very specific expectations around the kind of change that they would expect from those companies. And look, I guess I suppose where we would probably consider ourselves more ambitious in Climate Action 100, we do put up resolutions that are really trying to, I guess, push the barrow, stretch targets, if you like, to really change the conversation between investors and companies that they're invested in. So it's less about publishing new reports and more about actually setting targets and, and making real world action. It's still got a couple of years left to run, but I think, you know, we do have a real absence of government policy, not just in Australia, but elsewhere. So the need for corporations to take action on climate change is quite desperate. And the fact that BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager, that it joined this Climate Action 100 project uh, earlier this year, was that significant? Of course it is, yes. I mean, BlackRock, for those of you who aren't aware, I mean, BlackRock is one of the biggest, or if not the biggest shareholder in almost every listed company around the world. They don't necessarily sell out of of companies all too often. And, you know, they might hold 5% of any given listed company. So for that reason, they have quite a lot of sway. And I guess they hadn't been involved in Climate Action 100 for its first couple of years, but them joining certainly adds a bit more weight. And I think the important thing to note is that there is pressure on BlackRock as well. It's not just a matter of how much pressure can we put on the companies, but there is pressure coming on on investors like BlackRock and our big super funds to ensure that this engagement is meaningful and that they are actually getting outcomes from companies. Dan Gosher on the growing activism of shareholders and investors when it comes to reducing carbon emissions and tackling climate change. You're listening to Future Tense from ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Only a month or so ago, the Australian energy market operator released a forward-looking report on renewable power. The AEMO predicts that by 2035, approximately 90% of Australia's energy demand will regularly be met by renewables. And by 2040, they forecast, two-thirds of the nation's coal-fired power generation will be retired. Still, today, in 2020, many renewable projects struggle to find initial funding. We believe in the power of coming together. The City of Melbourne has brought together a group of large energy users who are committed to switching to renewable energy and reducing Melbourne's emissions. This project will power 14 shopping centres, nine office buildings, seven educational campuses and four manufacturing facilities across Melbourne with renewable energy for the next 10 years. This is the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project and it's something that we can all be proud of. Launched in late 2017, that project went on to fund the construction of a wind farm in rural Victoria. And now they've just commenced phase two, with co-funding from seven large organisations and companies. Rachel Watson is the CEO of Pacific Hydro, the company involved in the construction. She's also the chair of the Clean Energy Council. Rachel Watson. The benefit of this kind of group purchasing plan, first of all, is that by banding together, you can drive a better bargain. So 
people who've got more volume at their disposal can drive a better price. So obviously, a collective agreement like this allows them to negotiate for a good price. In addition to that, they're able to lock in their energy price. So by doing that, by offering a big enough amount of demand or what we call load, it was attractive for us to sign up a 10-year deal with them. So we get a locked-in price for 10 years and they get a locked-in price for 10 years. There's been an awful lot of volatility in the electricity price lately, as I'm sure a lot of people would have known and experienced. And so by doing this and banding together, they've been able to give themselves price certainty over the next 10 years. And then the third thing they've been able to do is most of these companies have their own emissions reduction targets or carbon footprint targets. So they're very, very motivated to do something that reduces their own carbon emissions from their own businesses. So that's really the big benefit that they see coming out of this is not only have they been able to group together and negotiate a good price, they've been able to lock it in over a long period of time and get certainty. And they're doing something great for the environment and helping their own corporate goals. And the wind farm that was built by your company as part of phase one of this project, would it have been built anyway without this kind of arrangement? Or was this really the driving force, I guess, for the establishment of the wind farm? We would have probably got around to building the wind farm eventually. But having this contract was absolutely critical for us getting the wind farm up and running when we did. And so that was really, really important because it enabled us to capture a moment in time when there was an opportunity that came through the door. So in that sense, absolutely, this buying group, the MREP1 project, Melbourne Renewable Energy Project number one, it really did help to get a new wind farm built in Victoria. The members of this buying group, I mean, they're all big energy users. Does it take organisations and companies of that scale to make this kind of group buying work? In this example, and particularly in MREP1, some of the companies didn't put all of their electricity requirements into the contract. So they were probably testing out the proof of concept. I would say that you wouldn't have to have a very huge amount of electricity demand, but we are talking about businesses here, not households. The main thing is to form a group of people that collectively adds up to a level of demand that then is big enough to actually justify building a new wind farm asset or a solar farm asset or whatever sort of renewable asset you're thinking of to meet that demand. Should we see the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project as a precedent, as an example for other jurisdictions, or is this unique to that particular city? I know that the City of Melbourne is very motivated to publish the learnings from this. I think they've even published a handbook that helps others to go down the same path. So I know they very much would like to see this model picked up and replicated by others. And from our point of view as a supplier, it's a terrific model. I mean, it's not particularly widely known in Australia. I didn't even know this until at the Clean Energy Summit, we heard from an international banker that Australia actually is the second largest market in the world for what we call corporate PPAs. PPA stands for Power Purchase Agreement. So that means companies going directly to electricity generators to buy their power rather than going through a retail company, the same sorts of companies that households would buy their power from. So this model is probably Australia's very well placed to do it because we have a lot of corporates who are taking matters into their own hands in order to meet their own emissions reduction targets and their own environmental goals. 
they're also looking at a market that's got quite volatile electricity prices. So this kind of model helps them lock in long-term price commitments, which can then really help with their budgeting and planning. So absolutely, this model could be adapted and used in other areas around Australia, in other local government regions in Victoria as well. And this is about civic engagement, isn't it? This isn't just about securing energy for the future or a cheaper rate. No, that's absolutely right. So these companies are taking control. They really want to step up and play their part. So in a business sense, it's a good proposition for them because they are locking in long-term energy providers at a fixed price. So they've got that security of supply and that stability of price over a longer period of time. But absolutely, their motivation is to do something positive towards reducing emissions. Pretty much all of the participants in these projects, as far as I know, have done it and they have their own emissions reductions targets that they're working towards. That really is a civic step. I mean, the City of Melbourne itself has committed to reducing all emissions from within the city to net zero by 2040. Other members of the group have got their own targets, for example, RMIT University and CBUS, who are both committed to being carbon neutral by 2030. It's a wonderful blend of good business and good environmental sense as well. As chair of the Clean Energy Council, you know, there have been a lot of, or quite a few efforts to actually demonstrate that investments in clean energy can actually lead to jobs and can be useful in helping a country like Australia out of the pandemic. Is that message, is it getting through though to politicians, do you think? Definitely, there are some politicians who are very much hearing that message. And Certainly around the world, we're seeing lots of examples of countries who are putting a clean energy recovery and emissions reductions at the heart of their post-COVID-19 stimulus packages. Only last week, I was in conversation with Dr. Birol, who's the executive director of the International Energy Agency in Paris, and the IEA, his organisation, is really lobbying hard and they came out early for as early as March this year saying clean energy and the transition to a cleaner economy needs to be put at the heart of our COVID-19 stimulus responses. So the message is out there. Some politicians are hearing it more readily than others. Obviously, in Australia, jobs are incredibly important. And you're quite right. The renewable energy sector is producing thousands of jobs at the moment many, many wind projects in construction. And then there's often a legacy of jobs that remain behind permanent jobs in regional communities, which is a really big benefit from a lot of the big renewable projects we're seeing being built in Australia at the moment. Rachel Watson from the Clean Energy Council and CEO of Pacific Hydro. Thank you very much. Good. Thanks, Anthony. Finally today... Let's go back to where we started and that idea that sometimes what seems simple and obvious can become political and contentious. Anytime we've ever discussed carbon capture and storage on this program, we've had emails from people suggesting that the mere discussion of such technology promotes the burning of fossil fuels. Now, the counter to that argument, of course, is that coal-fired power stations are going to be operating across the globe for a long time yet. So why not try to make their emissions cleaner? Geoffrey Long is a professor of chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley, and he and his colleagues have been developing new materials that promise to greatly improve the efficiency of carbon capture technology. 
most power plants don't strip CO2 from their emissions currently. It's being tested at a number of sites, perhaps a dozen or more worldwide. And that's usually done with aqueous solutions containing organic amine molecules, so strongly basic molecules that react with carbon dioxide to remove it from the flue gas. But this is something that is not being done at most power plants, and it's something that we do need to do as quickly as possible. Why isn't it being done at most power plants? It's not being done, really, I think, because there's really not a business incentive to capture CO2 and and stop it from going off into the atmosphere. Doing that costs money. And, you know, until governmental policy puts a price on carbon or creates other reasons that companies have to do it, it's not going to be done. And the current techniques for stripping carbon dioxide when they are used, what are the issues with that technique? Why are you and others looking to find a better way of doing that? The real problem here is manifold. CO2 stripping uh, is very energy intensive. And it requires, once you absorb the CO2 into this amine-containing solution, you then need to remove the CO2 from that solution by heating to very high temperatures, and usually about 150 degrees C or in that range. And that regeneration, which takes off pure carbon dioxide, that uses very valuable steam, and it takes it away from producing electricity And as a result, the cost of electricity is going to go up by perhaps 30%. So this is a a roughly 30% energy penalty associated with the current technologies. So that's one problem. Uh, Another problem is that the current technology using these amines, the amines actually, as you adsorb and desorb CO2, the amines react with oxygen in the flue gas and they degrade and they become ineffective after a number of cycles and they have to be replaced continuously. So without getting too technical here, the alternative that Professor Long and his team have developed involves creating a metal organic framework that is then modified with nitrogen-based compounds called diamines. And so far, they've shown considerable promise. The material that we recently reported We were really focused on a natural gas power plant, and we could capture 90% of the CO2 being emitted. So we could knock the concentration uh, down from 4% to below 0.4%. And so what we show here is that that's possible with these newest types of materials that we've created. And so where to from here for the the various types of materials that you're developing? So for these materials, you know, we've demonstrated them in a research lab at small quantities, so grams of material. And power plants, the scale of a power plant is staggering, of course. And so there's a lot of development work between a discovery like this and testing pilot plants and, you know, gradually building up in scale and making sure that you have a viable process before it would be implemented. You know, so that takes a lot of time and dedicated research effort and money, of course. But we need to do this as quickly as possible. And, and so it's really important that we push these new technologies as fast as we can. There is, as as you would know, what's called the moral hazard argument that's put forward by people about carbon capture and storage technology, that it simply forestalls the inevitable in terms of us dealing with the levels of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. What would be your response to that? 
So I completely understand that, and I agree that we need to get away from fossil fuels as an energy source, but there's clearly no way of doing that in the near term. And, you know, every projection that's realistic shows that we're going to have increasing uses of fossil fuel for the next many decades. And that's just extremely hazardous for our planet. And this is the kind of technology that we could implement to help forestall global warming while we learn how to really completely convert to renewable energy sources. And so if you look at the uh, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change recommendations, you know, to keep below a one and a half or even two degrees C increase in temperature by 2050, there's no solution that doesn't involve, you know, really large quantities of carbon capture and sequestration. And so it's just the practicality of the matter. Contentious? Sure, but hopefully also effective. Professor Jeffrey Long from UC Berkeley. We also heard today from Rachel Watson at Pacific Hydro, Dan Gosher from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility and the ANU's Paul Burke. Go to the Future Tense website if you want more details. Karen Savanovitz is my colleague and co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, stay safe. And cheese. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.